You're listening to Parents You've Got This, the expert guide to parenthood. The complete guide to pregnancy, birth, baby and parenthood. This podcast is brought to you by Parents You've Got This and proudly supported by Mastella. Mastella is a natural origin skincare for babies and children, recommended by healthcare professionals. Mastella by Parents Side since 1950. Birth isn't always easy or predictable. Sometimes mothers need expert intervention to ensure their or their baby's safety. Today on the podcast, we have our obstetrician and gynecologist, Dr. Peter Jersevic, talking all about medical inductions and assisted deliveries. Dr. Peter Jersevic is an obstetrician and gynecologist with over 27 years of expertise. He specialises in high-risk pregnancies. He's one of the head of obstetrics at the Royal Women's Hospital, and he runs his own private practice at Francis Perry House. Thank you so much, Peter, for joining us. My pleasure. Now, firstly, Pete, can we talk a little bit about induction? When might a woman need an induction? Sure. I'd probably like to begin the conversation by saying that where possible, we would always prefer to avoid an unnecessary intervention of any sort, and particularly an induction uh, for a woman who's keen to have a normal delivery of a vaginal birth attempt. We would always advocate for the spontaneous onset of labour where possible. But there can be a multitude of reasons why it might be preferable to look at bringing the labour on to start the process of birth uh, because of a concern that might have arisen that affects the mother's health or the baby's health. Uh, the list is long and lengthy and there, and there are probably some that will be very obvious. So for example, if a baby is severely growth restricted, we are concerned that that baby is at risk of not just the malnourishment from a placenta that's not working well, but possible deoxygenation and of course the consequences to the baby's brain and life if that becomes a problem. And that's always a standout potential induction cause. There can be situations where a woman's blood pressure will rise and we're probably familiar with terms like toxemia or preeclampsia. And in its severest form, toxemia and preeclampsia for a woman and also for the baby can be life-threatening. You know, severe organ failure, uh, placental disruption, death. So uh, a life-threatening condition. Uh, poorly controlled diabetes, particularly for someone who's pre-existing or has insulin requirements. Uh, and there's a name but a few. There are situations where nowadays we're seeing a cohort of women by circumstance of age, fertility, and so on. Sometimes their social demographic, even their uh, demographic from their country of origin. We've got some data sets that sometimes show that going beyond, say, 39 weeks or full term can occasionally pose a risk to some of their babies, particularly depending on how the pregnancy has been faring. And so whenever I have a woman that I'm looking after, and any woman indeed who's been looked after in any form of care, the conversation is always going to be about how is the pregnancy progressing, how are you feeling, how's the baby going, and are both you and the baby safe? And when it becomes clear to us as care providers that the situation is not safe, then we would advocate for getting the baby out. Now, the, the art of that decision is making sure the decision is necessary, so it is a genuine risk to you or the baby, and therefore really delivery is important. But also the timing, because we know that every precious moment in the uterus is important for the baby, for their brain development, organ development, and so on. And we don't want a baby to go to the nursery unnecessarily if it doesn't have to, particularly if it's born prematurely. So as a care provider, and, and certainly myself, I'm thinking about all of these very important factors when I make decisions about when a woman might need to be induced and so on. Another really obvious one in terms of necessity is you can't be pregnant forever. So if you get yes. to 41 weeks, so you know what's 40 weeks and seven days, 40 weeks and 10 days, 40 weeks and two, you know, two additional weeks, 14 days, we know that we've got data sets that show the placenta will not work forever. And there will come a point where we would like to offer you an induction to get the labour going because you have to get into labour eventually to have the baby. 
And so Pete, are there different methods in which a woman would be induced? Yeah, so generally speaking, we're focusing on two important first things. Is the mother a first-time mother or a second-time mother? So another Prius woman or a primep, as we call it, or a multi-grabber woman. And what her birth history uh, had previously to get a sense of what we're expecting from the delivery coming. Uh, then we would usually offer an examination with permission vaginally to assess the cervix, and we have what's called a bishop score. And what a bishop score is, it rates the cervix, and it rates it based on how it feels, how dilated it is, how long or short, you know, if it's soft, thick, hard, all sorts of things, and we give it a score. And that mental score that we have gives us a sense as a clinician as to what is the best modality for inducing, because there are different options available to help the woman to get into labour. We then make that recommendation, and then with the woman's permission, we would start using that process. And can you talk us through those different options? What, what, what sort of options would you have? Yeah, so for a woman who's, say, for example, a first-time mother, she might be overdue by, say, 10 days, the cervix is long and closed, hopefully soft, but nonetheless unfavourable, then we have a couple of options, which is to place a catheter called a Cook's catheter, which is placed into the cervix, and then we inflate that catheter, which puts pressure on the cervix to help to stretch it, uh, to dilate it, uh, to thin it, because a cervix has to thin and dilate, um, and hopefully that will trigger a local reaction whereby local prostaglandin hormone will release and that will be all it takes for the woman to go into labour. And then of course as she labours and the cervix opens, the catheter will fall out and so on. There are situations where that will be used, there will be enough to dilate the cervix, but then we'll need another trigger and that trigger might be breaking the waters, what we call an ARM, an artificial rupture of membranes. Uh, and occasionally if that's not enough to get the woman into labour, a drip with some oxytocin, which is a synthetic version of your own natural uh, oxytocic hormone to start contractions to stimulate the uterus. Now there might be other women where we decide that we don't want to use the Cook's catheter but we might want to give them a synthetic version of this prostaglandin hormone and, and this is inserted into the vagina as a paste or a little tablet that you can use and that will hopefully help to stimulate a contraction response. Uh, I have this analogy that I equate the cervix to a handbrake in a car and if you've ever tried to drive a car with a handbrake on no matter how hard you rev the engine you're not going to go very far and you're not going to drive very well. And the cervix is very much like a handbrake. And if we don't get that cervix ripe, so it's shortening, dilating, uh, then it's going to be very hard to rev the engine, even if we were to break the waters and pop a drip in or so on. Yes. So it's really important to try to ripen that cervix. And generally it's that prostaglandin modality, the prostin, uh, or using the Cook's catheter that we would use for the unfavorable cervix. Some women sit there in whatever capacity they're being induced with a very, very ripe cervix, very dilated, quite thin, what we would call very favourable. Uh, for a second time mother, all you might need to do is literally just with permission break their waters. And we have two instruments to do that, a little amni hook, which is a, like a little crochet hook, which just breaks the waters. Uh, a little instrument called an alligator forceps, which pinches the membranes and breaks it. And are they painful, Pete? So you'll be pleased to know the actual breaking of the membranes itself is not painful because there's no nerve fibres in the membranes. For you as the woman having a vaginal examination, obviously it depends on how you tolerate that examination. We would like to think with lubrication, permission and so on, it will be relatively well tolerated. And I would hope it would be for a bunch of reasons, notwithstanding the fact that if the examination to break your waters is difficult, and I would do my best to not make it difficult and not painful, you're about to push it three and a half kilos <laughs> and being out. Yeah. <laughs> so I would argue politely that if you're finding the examination hard, I think you might, dare I say, find labour challenging, understandably. Mm. Uh, so yeah, for some women that might be all you're required. For other women in a first time pregnancy, breaking the waters might not be enough of a stimulant to generate contractions. And in that situation we might use the oxytocin. So we have the different modalities. Uh, there's actually a new formulation about to arrive in the country which is an oral version of the gel. 
wow, across wow. the land. And, and um, when we get the data sets right on the safety of this, that might be an option where instead of having to be examined invasively, we might be able to give you tablets. And those tablets will be able to get you into labour. And that might be uh, a less invasive way of starting your birth process if you need to be induced. That'd be great. That yeah. would be great. Hey. So Pete, if a woman is in labour um, and they need an assisted delivery, can you talk to us a little bit about the statistics around this and also what the different types of assisted delivery are? Yeah. So by assistance, you are talking, uh, we'll say for a vaginal assisted birth as distinct from an emergency caesarean section. Mm. So we know that if you're in a first pregnancy and you're having a baby, 50 to 55% of the time, the end of the labour will be you pushing your baby out. Uh, we know that about 30 to 35% of the time, you'll be looking at having an emergency Caesar, and there can be a multitude of reasons for that. So mathematically, that's leaving about 10 to 15% of women left over. So that's the cohort of women that either having trouble pushing the baby out themselves and they're fatigued, uh, the baby's in an odd position, and a bit of correction on that position might help with the assistance of, um, of vaginal birth. A baby that might be very distressed, and it's becoming very obvious that the level of distress that the baby's showing to us as clinicians is such that if we wait much longer, you're going to have a potentially injured baby. So I really personally try to steer clear of assisted births as much as possible. Uh, I always have this sort of idea that have a normal birth, maybe a Caesar's the second best and then the forceps and the vacuum's third. But have no illusions, they have a place. And particularly for a birth where there's imminency to the birth, the baby's low in the birth canal and you as a, a what we call an accoucheur, a, a specialist in delivering babies, I'm really confident that you can conduct that assisted birth in a way that is going to protect the baby and protect you and in particular your anatomy. Because when you think about it, when you are pulling, whether it be with a vacuum cup, the Vontus, uh, or with the forceps, you are ultimately applying force to the vagina. And that has implications on the vaginal tissue, implications on the pelvic floor, and obviously in the baby's neck and head and so on. So I always, uh, particularly with the trainees that I educate at the hospital, I always say be very considered in making a decision to do an assisted birth and be on your A-game every time you do it. Mm -hmm. Now, which instrument we choose, um, there are women who certainly will have heard stories and understandably, and, and stories that maybe aren't so great about instrumental births and I don't want to force it because it's a vacuum or nothing. And I respect that, you know, that comment. But there are situations where you just can't use a vacuum, you can only use a forceps. And you are having to really respect the decision of the doctor who's making that call for you that they've made a choice on the instrument that they recommend that they're going to do it in the way that's going to protect you and the baby, like I've just said. So forceps have a place and there are different types of forceps for different levels of traction and, and rotation. There's the vacuum cup, which is applied to the baby and it applies a vacuum seal and that can be used to rotate and pull as well. And when you're doing that, the way you do it, the angles you use, the force you're using, the importance of the mother pushing at the same time and her effort, pain control with or without an epidural, uh, understanding the anatomy, understanding whether an episiotomy might be required, how well prepared the mother is in terms of the potential for tearing and so on. You need to be considering all these things and, and a good doctor would be considering this. And should you need that assisted birth, hopefully it will be a close second to what would have been a normal birth for whatever the reason was that you needed the assistance. And I guess the most important thing is that the mother and the baby are safe. Yeah, look, I think any provider of care in obstetrics, whether it be the antenatal care to the birth or the intrapartum care in labour, the afterbirth care and so on, it, it, your whole focus is on healthy mums and healthy babies, otherwise why are we doing it? 
and you're having to make a lot of decisions on the go very quickly. Uh, a lot of the time, uh, with particularly with assisted births, you can sometimes see it coming mm-hmm. and you're anticipating it. So you're preparing the woman as much as yourself for it. Uh, there are, of course, situations where occasionally a real emergency occurs and it's very sudden and it's a bit of a, thankfully, rarely a life or death moment and you just have to make a call to you know, get that baby out quickly. And um, you hope that you'll do that in a way that will be not traumatic to the mother, not traumatic to the baby. Um, and, uh, and dare I say that the overall experience will be an experience of, well, I got a healthy baby and it was fine. But those really, really sort of life or death, really full on moments are, are very, very rare. Well, thank you so much, Peter. A huge thanks to Mustella for sponsoring this episode. If you want a product that can protect your baby's skin against nappy rash, try Mustella's Vitamin Barrier Cream. Dermatologist and paediatrician tested, it soothes the skin from the first application and offers long-lasting protection that lasts until the next nappy change. Recommended by 98% of Aussie parents. You've been listening to the Expert Guide to Parenthood. Um, next week on the podcast, we have Dr. Peter Jesevic talking all about caesareans and the caesarean process. So never forget, parents, you've got this. The information provided in this podcast is general in nature and is intended to support, not replace, a discussion with your doctor or healthcare professional. Parents You've Got This take no responsibility for any medical decisions made by individuals based on the information provided in this podcast. Join a Parents You've Got This masterclass today to be prepared, excited and educated for pregnancy, birth, baby and parenthood. Visit www.parentsyou'vegotthis.com.au and sign up for a masterclass today.